You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. Good morning. If you would open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 25 through the end of chapter 26, that's where we're going to be this morning. See, many years ago, I was watching the Discovery Channel, and they had this show that followed the lives of Navy SEALs, the training of Navy SEALs. It was an intense training that happened in the water and then out of the water, holding their breath for extended periods of time, putting on and taking off gear underwater while holding their breath, the freezing cold, the rain, the sunshine, all of the elements, early in the morning to late at night with very little sleep. And then sometimes when they would get to sleep in the middle of the night, they would go and they would wake them up for a drill in the middle of the night. It's some crazy training. But in order to complete the training, they had to be resilient. They had to stand firm and be mentally tough. They had to face challenges every day, day after day, knowing that eventually they would end. But these guys didn't know how long each day was going to be. And that one week felt like it lasted forever. If it got to be too much for anybody to take or it got to be too difficult, they would ring a bell and give up during the training. If things got too hard, or they just felt like they couldn't make it any longer, they could tap out. And many of them did. Many of them gave up, but some of them persevered. And there's a reason why these guys are the best of the best. We are ready and willing to be put, they were ready and willing to be put through the torture because they could see the finish line. They were fighting for what they believed in. It was worth the cost because they valued the prize. They had a goal in mind. They knew that if they got through this, their commitment would pay off. For that week or two, it was like a never-ending avalanche of difficulty. Similarly, Paul is about to be put the ringer. In fact, he's been going through the ringer. He's about to go on trial again. He sees the goal. He knows what lies ahead, but he keeps having to take punch after punch to endure it. Beatings, Delayed by Felix, two years spent bound in chains, but he knows his goal, and his goal is to get to Rome. His goal is to preach before kings, so he is faithful. He endures because he values the prize of the gospel being proclaimed. He's He's not going to ring that bell or tap out because Jesus has made a promise to him. He is going to make it to Rome. He just probably didn't expect to get there the way that he does. We begin in Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 5, and this is how it reads. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priest and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he, might, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let him bring charges against him. Felix, the governor that we met last week, has now lost his position because of his poor governing. So the emperor replaces him with this man, Festus, 
and Festus wastes no time politicking. After only three days of his appointment, he goes down to Jerusalem to meet with the Jewish leaders there. Why would he do that? Well, this is a natural thing for a new governor to do in this time period. Jerusalem, remember, is the cultural and religious center of his territory. And so they, they were a huge influence on his people. So he wants to introduce himself to them so that they can start building his tr- their trust in him. And when Festus arrives in Jerusalem, the chief priest and important men meet with him to lay out their case against Paul. And this is all new to Festus. Festus hasn't heard any of this yet. And so he listens, and he knows now that Paul has been in prison for two years. And that the, he doesn't know this, but that there's hatred and animosity between the Jewish leaders and Paul. And it still runs really deep. The leaders believe that they can influence Festus to hand Paul over to them. So they ask Festus for a favor. It's kind of like when they say, you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back. But initially, Festus finds it more practical and more prudent and more convenient for the trial to be held in Caesarea. So he invites the Jewish leaders to come and present their charges there. And then we read in verses 6 through 12. After he stayed among them, not more than eight eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him that they could not prove. But Paul in his defense, neither against the law, but Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before men? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charge against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. This is a Paul's bold appeal. After about eight to ten days, they make their way down to Caesarea, Festus and the leaders of the the Jews. A tribunal is held and Paul is presented. He is ordered once again to defend himself against some false charges. Luke records that the Jews from Jerusalem stood around him, that they hovered around him to intimidate and pressure him. They wanted him to feel the weight of their presence, and the weight of the matter, and the fact that they are going to be an ever-present thorn in his side. Luke tells us that they brought up some serious charges against him, but they don't. he doesn't tell us what these charges actually were. But we can assume that they were the same charges brought against him when Felix was governor, that being that he was a ringleader, a trouble-causer, and a defiler of the temple, that he is a plague and a pest to both the empire and to the people of God. Paul responds with the fact that he has already been accused without any evidence and he hasn't committed any such offense. He is innocent of all charges, yet they still want him in captivity, but even better than captivity, they want him dead. 
And Festus doesn't know what to do. But he was a politician. And as politicians do, he wanted to gain favor with the Jews. He whiffed the first time when they asked for a favor. So the favor he wants to extend to the Jewish people, he points to Paul and he says, do you want to have a trial in Jerusalem? And Paul said, no. Because this means that if he went to Jerusalem, there would be at least an attack on his life. Somebody would at least try to kill him. And they could be successful. And that would be the end of the story for Paul. So Paul's using some wisdom and discernment here, knowing that if he goes back to Jerusalem, he's not going to be able to continue on the mission. So Paul isn't having any of this. Everyone present knows that this is all a charade. But Festus wants to build bridges. Paul doesn't mind that he's being held accountable if he is guilty. He agrees to be held accountable for any and all laws that he has broken. But he is an upstanding citizen and a devoted Jew. He isn't guilty of any of the accusations set before him. He doesn't seek to escape death or desire to escape being held accountable. He is already and willing to die, but this is too much, and he will not die for a lie. The Jewish leaders are bearing false witness against him, but he is innocent, and he wants a chance to prove his innocence. They are making him out to be a criminal, so he doesn't want to go into a hostile environment, and he doesn't want to risk death. So as a Roman citizen, Paul had a privilege that not all people during this time had. He could appeal to have his case heard by Caesar himself. This appeal would stop any and all current trials. Festus is new on the scene, and even though he wants to have favor with the Jewish leaders, there's nothing he can do when Paul appear, appeals to Caesar. Because if word gets to the Caesar that a Roman citizen has called to be held accountable by Caesar, then Festus would be removed and put to death if he impedes it in any way. So Festus concedes and grants Paul's appeal. But before Paul is shipped off to Rome, we see that another visitor arrives, verses 13 through 22. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And they, and as they stayed there for many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priest and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up and brought, they brought no charge in his case such of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about a certain religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether the, he wanted to go to Jerusalem to be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So King Agrippa steps onto the scene. This is Agrippa II. He's a son of King Agrippa, 
the one who beheaded James in Acts chapter 12. He's grandson of King Herod Antipas, who heard Jesus' trial before his crucifixion. He's also the great-grandson of King Herod the Great that hunted down the babies during Jesus' childhood. So he comes from a messed-up family with a deep and rich history about Jesus and his followers. Agrippa made his way to Caesarea to meet and greet the new governor, but he didn't travel alone. He was with his sister, Bernice. And it was well known at this time that King Agrippa and Bernice were more than just brother and sister. In fact, they were having an incestuous relationship with one another after Bernice's first husband died. And they traveled everywhere together. So you will read over and over again in in antiquity and in the Bible that there was Agrippa and Bernice. Festus is still a new governor, and he still isn't sure of himself. So when Agrippa comes to visit, he he relays the story of Paul's capture and imprisonment the accusations against him from the Jewish leaders. Here's one thing that we need to recognize. Paul is never found guilty in the eyes of the law. You see, time after time he is brought before rulers, and each time they don't charge him with anything because he is innocent. Each investigation, each trial, each time he is brought before a ruler, he is found blameless. Yet the Jewish people still want to find fault in him. Festus even points this out in verse 19, that there are di- that the disputes that they are having are disputes about their religion, about Jesus, and about the resurrection. These arguments that have no real bearing on the law of the land. These religious leaders are still trying to keep him down and would love to have his head on a silver plat- platter. And if they can't have his head on a silver platter, then they're going to keep him tied up in the system so that he can't preach his message anymore. Agrippa is intrigued by the story of Paul, and his curiosity makes him want to meet and hear Paul's side of the story. So Agrippa says that he would like to hear the man himself. Festus arranges for the meeting between Paul and Agrippa the next day. And in verses 25 or 23 through 27, this is what we read. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes, the prominent men of the city, the command of Festus. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who were present with us, you, sh- you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write, my lord, about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Paul and Agrippa finally meet. And Festus is in kind of a pickle here. Paul appeals to Caesar, but in order for Festus to send Paul to Caesar, he has to have a letter to Caesar explaining the case. But there's no case to be found. So this gathering is held to help write this appeal to Caesar. One of the things I want you to notice here is that when they gather, there is great pomp. This is the Greek word that where we get the English word 
fantasy. This is a fantastical demonstration. They're walking in with their dress, being dressed up because they are important, because they are powerful, because they are influential, and they want to be seen. There are military personnel, prominent members of the city, governors and kings present to hear Paul speak. And it's not a true trial at all. Again, they can't hold a trial because he's appealed to Caesar. But they can put on a show. They can have fun at Paul's expense. Here they are in their here they are in their regal clothing, listening to this prisoner in his shabby clothes tell his story. Can you imagine the contrast between the two? The pomp and the power or the pauper. The powerful and the prisoner. The arrogant and the humble. But Paul is going to have the last laugh. He's going to take this time to testify to God's goodness. He is going to preach the gospel to all those present, but his main focus is going to be on Agrippa. God has orchestrated this event so that Paul is fulfilling what Jesus spoke about him in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, where Paul is going to stand before Gentiles, before the children of Israel, and kings, and bear witness of God's goodness. Let's read what happens in chapter 26, verses 1 through 11. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hands and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have long known of for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God our, to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, and as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem, not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they came or when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And then I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. Paul here is presenting his defense. He's given the floor and he gives a background of what is happening. Beginning out of respect for Agrippa, he claims that he is innocent of all accusations presented by the Jewish leaders. He also appeals to Agrippa's knowledge of Jewish customs. And much like his fathers before him, Agrippa tried to live according to the Jewish law. So Agrippa is accustomed to the rites, the rituals, and the regulations of the Jewish laws. And in addition to this, he is knowledgeable about the Jewish scriptures, which we'll talk about in a little bit. He again recounts the fact that from a young age that Paul was a devout Jewish boy. He was trained under a most revered rabbi, Gamaliel. He was known by and seen by Jewish people as a lover of God and devoted to the law. 
He was devoted to the law so much that he became a Pharisee. And not just a Pharisee, but the strictest of Pharisees. But since his arrival in Jerusalem two years ago, he has been an enemy of the Jewish people. He has been beaten and unjustly imprisoned. Why has this happened? Why do the people hate Paul? Why do they wish Paul dead? Because he is proclaiming the fulfillment of God's promise. In verses 6 and 7, it says this, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews. God promised that his people would be restored. God promised that he would save and redeem his people. What the Jewish people had longed for, what they had prayed for, and what they waited for had now happened. The anointed and the appointed king of Israel had shown up, and yet they were blinded by this truth. They could not wrap their minds around the fact that God had raised Jesus from the dead. He could speak the world into existence, but he didn't have the power over the dead, or so they supposed. Not only that, but many Jewish people could not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Holy One, their Savior, and the Savior of the world, because he wasn't what they expected. He wasn't what they wanted. He didn't fit into the box that they had believed that he should have fit into. In fact, today, people still stand at the wailing wall in Jerusalem, longing for their Savior, all the while missing the truth that he is already here. He has already come. And Paul appeals to them, and he says, in fact, I know their unbelief belief, because I was a part of their unbelief. He didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. He couldn't believe that the Savior looked different and acted differently and taught differently than what he had expected. He believed that Jesus blasphemed the name of God and that his followers were deceived and blasphemed God as well. So he sought to destroy them. He sought to root out the movement, not just in the holy city, but he wanted to go into surrounding area and destroy the way wherever it may turn up. And what's interesting to me as I studied this is that Paul was so angry and he was so frustrated and determined against the followers of Jesus. But he stood by and did nothing to the other idol worshipers in the area. There's something different about Jesus. Something about Jesus that threatens people's beliefs. Something about Jesus that caused Paul to wish death on his followers. Paul said that he had a raging fury against them. And isn't that still true today? Jesus just hits people differently. Any and all other religious beliefs tend to be on the table but, and can be talked about. But when Christianity, Christianity is talked about, when Jesus is talked about, it upsets people. I want you to think about why that is. I wonder why it is. And as Paul traveled to destroy the followers of Jesus, something happened. Something happened to him that changed his life forever. Verse 12. 
In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen on the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things which you have seen me and, in, and to those to which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and then throughout the whole region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would have come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. Paul here gives his testimony. He has an encounter with the risen Lord. Jesus revealed who he was on the road to Damascus. In this retelling of Paul's encounter with Jesus, we have a greater picture of the interaction between Paul and Jesus. There's more of a dialogue given between Paul and Jesus this time around. More details are given in this exchange than there were in previous one. And most likely this is because this is a climax of Paul's telling of his testimony. This is the last instance that we read about Paul's conversion, and so it gives us a greater picture of what's, what happened. And one of the things that Jesus said to him that made me curious, real curious, was when he said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. I had no idea what that meant. And I'm sure some of you don't think, know what that means either. But goads were used to correct and lead animals. They were long sticks with a point on the end. And then if, if an animal didn't like to get prodded with the goad, sometimes they would kick against the goad and still get hurt in the process. Jesus is telling Saul that what he is fighting against is unstoppable. You can't get rid of the gospel. You can't fight against it. It's going to keep moving forward. Paul is fighting against something and fighting against the Savior that he longed for. He is fighting against the God that he continues to say that he loves and serves. And if he keeps fighting against God, then he is going to get hurt. But Jesus has a plan for Paul. That is why he meets him here on the road to Damascus. And this was a saying in the Greek culture as well. And when a Greek would have heard this phrase... They would have heard it and interpreted it this way. Why do you fight against your destiny? 
Paul was chosen for a purpose, and that purpose was to spread the gospel to the world. He was going to serve both, or he was going to serve Jesus both as a servant and a witness. Paul's task, he tells us here, was to open the eyes of the blind, much like his eyes had to be opened. He was to point people to the truth, to deliver them from the domain of darkness to the power of the light, to show them Jesus that can change and transform them and make them into the image of Jesus, to preach and teach God's forgiveness, that they may receive it and believe it, that they may be made holy through the sacrifice of Jesus. And this is a message of the gospel, that you are broken, sinful, and in rebellion against God. You are his enemy. You stand opposed to him. You stand separated from him. But God takes what is broken, what is sinful, what is rebellious, and what is separated from him, and he draws it close. He gives you his righteousness. He brings you into a relationship with him. He gives you right standing through Jesus Christ. Jesus came and suffered and died for your sins because of your rebellion, because he wanted to make you alive. But he didn't just die. On the third day, he rose again, verifying everything that he had taught. And this is the crux of what we believe and hold fast to, that Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. He was resurrected. And when you trust in him, you are no longer dead in your sins and trespasses. You are no longer separated from him. Rather, you are made alive. You are brought to the light. You are forgiven. You are chained, changed, and you are being sanctified. And when we meet him face to face at the end of this life, you will be glorified because of what he did. But you have to repent of your sins. You have to turn away from your sinful desires. And this is, can only be done through faith in Jesus and the grace that he gives us. Turn from your desires. Turn from your lust, greed, pride, arrogance, and idolatry. Turn toward God. Follow after Jesus. Live as Jesus commanded us to be holy and devoted to him. Devoted to sacrificing daily so that we can seek his face. That we would love him with our heart, our mind, our body, and our spirit. That we would love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And if you don't repent, if you don't turn toward Jesus, if you don't live a life chasing after him and loving him, you will spend eternity separated from him. So, if you believe and trust in Jesus, remember that God saved you so that you could be with him and so that you can show other people his grace through your witness. Be grateful. Be humble. And be bold to tell others about the life that you received. And this is the message. The message of Jesus' resurrection and a call to repentance that Paul was seized by the Jews. That they longed to murder him. He preached a message that offended Jewish people. That all could be saved, Gentile and Jew. The Jews didn't like the fact that Paul taught that all people can be saved. And if I'm being honest, do you really believe that all people 
can be saved? Do you believe that there are some people not worthy of God's grace? A couple weeks ago, I came across this video of this soldier in the military. And he's a follower of Jesus. And I was convicted by what he asked. This was shortly after all the chaos had ensued in Afghanistan. And people were really hopping on the bandwagon of praying for the church in Afghanistan, which I completely agree with. We should definitely be praying for the church in Afghanistan. But he posed a question that struck me to my core. And he said, are you praying for the Taliban? Are you praying that they would come to know Jesus? Are you praying that they would be saved? that they would see the error of their ways? Or are you just praying that God would smite them, that God would wipe them off the planet because they don't deserve grace, because they don't deserve God? In addition to that, I ask you, are you praying for the other people in your life and in your circles that sin differently than you, whether they be the drunk, the addict, the abusive, the homosexual, the gossiper, the liar, the thief, whoever it may be, are you praying that they would repent and turn towards God? Because they are living in darkness. They are blind. They are comfortable in their sin because they are dead in their sins and trespasses. So instead of being gatekeepers, when it comes to Jesus, we should be dragging people to the gate and telling them to walk through to see the light of who Jesus is. The loving light that wants all people to turn from their sin and turn towards Jesus. This means that we don't get to make people villains. Rather, we hope that they see the grace of God through our witness to them and through the gospel being preached to them. Paul didn't hold any grudges towards those who beat him and wanted them dead. In fact, in Romans 9.3, he would write, For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He would be willing to be cut off from Christ if it meant that he could have his fellow kinsmen saved. Paul is passionate about the gospel. He is passionate about people turning towards God. He took every opportunity to preach the gospel. He longed for people to know and worship Jesus. Whether he thought that they deserved it or not, he recognized that no one deserves to know and love God. It is a privilege to know and love God. It is a privilege to be called by Him. It is a privilege to be made alive by Him. It is a privilege to be in His light, to serve Him and to love Him. Paul has given his defense and he has given his testimony, but he gets interrupted by Festus. Let me read. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. 
Your great learning has driven you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true words and rational words. For the king knows about the things, and I, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For not one has been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul's given this testimony, and Festus interrupts him. Festus can't believe his ears. He thinks that Paul has gone crazy, that he believes too deeply about the things that he is saying. Because the message of Jesus is foolishness to those who are perishing. They don't get it. They can't get it. Not until their eyes are opened. And Paul's convictions are too strong for Festus. But Paul reassures him that he is of sound mind. Paul is speaking true and rational words. He knows what he has seen. He knows what he has experienced. He knows that Jesus is alive and well. He knows that it is his mission to worship and serve God. But then Paul does something that's unheard of, something super bold. He puts King Agrippa on the spot. He backs Agrippa into a corner. The prophets all spoke about what was to occur. Agrippa, after all, knew and believed what the prophets wrote. And if it was true that he knew and believed, then he should see Jesus for who he was. And he should see Jesus and worship Jesus for who he is. But Agrippa is a politician, so naturally he doesn't answer the question. Rather, he is baffled that Paul would think that he could convince him to be a Christian in such a short time. Paul then says, he raises his hands bound in the chains, shaking those chains in front of everybody. He says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul desires that all would come to repentance. And even as he suffers for Jesus, he tells them about the good news of the gospel. Paul's desire is for people to know the goodness of Jesus, to know the love of Jesus, to know the grace of Jesus. And he doesn't care that he has to suffer because to suffer for Jesus is greater than to not know him at all. Listen to that again. To suffer for Jesus is greater than not knowing him at all. Paul has just finished his his last significant speech recorded in the book of Acts. He has presented the gospel and his testimony clearly and accurately. He has called for repentance and trust in Jesus. He didn't back down when standing in front of pomp and royalty, when standing in a room filled with opulence. Even as a spectacle, Paul stood firm on his convictions and stayed true to Jesus. So as he finished, 
Agrippa, Bernice, Festus, and all with them go to discuss Paul privately. Verse 30. And then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and all those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. They all decide that Paul is innocent of all charges, that there is no reason that he can't be free. He doesn't need to be imprisoned or put to death. And if it wasn't for Paul's appeal to Caesar, he would have been a free man. But God had a plan and design that Paul would stand before Caesar. So Paul is off to Rome. Paul is about to start his journey to Rome. And we'll read more about that next week. So what are some takeaways? That we need to love and respect those who we are preaching the gospel to. That there is no need to disrespect those who are persecuting us. Those who think we're ridiculous. Those who think that we are teaching nonsense. Rather, we should love them and tell them about the good news of Jesus. We should have the desire to tell others about Jesus so that they can experience the life more abundantly. And one of the ways that we can do that is to share your testimony. It's good to look back and see how God has changed you. And I would suggest, I think I've told you guys this before, that you have three different testimonies. And these are marked out solely for time's sake. But you should have an elevator pitch, a car ride pitch, and a nice dinner pitch. A short, a medium, and a long testimony. So that whatever the circumstance is, you can tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done in your life. That you were one way and now you're another. That you were dead and now you're alive. That you were living in darkness and now you live in light. Remember that our lives as Jesus followers are all about Jesus. Much like Paul, we need to be willing to give up all that we are, all that we have, and all that we ever hope to be to follow him. It's like that old hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Do you really believe that? That you owe it all to Jesus? We should be willing to give up just as much as he did, and he gave it all. In all that we do, we need to rely on God's grace, his direction, and his help. He will give us strength. He will give us insight. And he will give the words when we need to stand up for him. If you aren't a follower of Jesus, he desires for you to be in a relationship with him. He wants to know you. He wants you to turn away from your sin and come towards the light of his love and grace. He is calling out to you. He is drawing you to him. Will you respond? Will you answer him? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time to study what you have shown us in the scriptures. Lord, I pray that it would rest heavy on our hearts and on our minds, that we would be convicted by what we heard here today, by what you say in your word, that we would take that and we would proclaim it to those who don't know you who are far from you. Lord, that we would proclaim it to ourselves that there is always grace at the foot of the cross, that it's not just for salvation, but it's also for us today. 
as we're following after you. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.